The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. The passage for today is Philippians 3, 4b through 14. Dr. Webster is going to be preaching from the NIV, and so the reading will be from the NIV this morning. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basics of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus, the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to be God. God. Dr. Webster will hear you gladly. Grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Messiah. So good to be with you. Uh, I've been here before. This is a great uh, post-Easter worship group this morning. Uh, This is wonderful. I think it's a sign. The pandemic has kind of indicated those churches that are going to thrive in the midst of all that's gone on over uh, over this past year. And those households of faith that I think are emboldened and strengthened and encouraged and drawn closer to Christ because of what has gone on. I think you may fit in the latter category. Of course, every Sunday is really Easter Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And when we go through Lent, uh, it's really 40 days of Lent, but every Sunday is an exception because Sunday is always understood in the life of the church as celebrating the resurrection. This is just a wonderful passage in Philippians 3. Uh, Jonathan, uh, when he called me and asked me to preach, he said, you know, you can preach on a sermon that you've already done. And... uh, and I thought to myself, this was going through my mind, so it was just wonderful to have the opportunity to have the purpose of kind of preparing for you this past week in Philippians 3. As Brad read it, 
If you've got your Bibles open, it'd be great for you to track with me, especially at the beginning here as we lay a foundation in the meaning of this passage and how the Apostle put it together. The first paragraph, if someone thinks that they have confidence, I have it more, is really a paragraph on religion. And my main concern this morning is to discuss the difference between confidence in religion and confidence in Christ. The difference between religious confidence and Christ-centered confidence. I do think that the church exists in a witness between two, two factors, the religious factor and the secular factor. And you might think of it as, in a way, a two-front combat with the world, the religious as well as the secular. Uh, I think for a long time we've kind of thought, well, it's just Christianity against the world that's secular and antithetical to what Christ stands for. Uh, I think we have a two-front issue going on here with religion and secularity. And society on both fronts does not really appeal to Christianity very well. The first paragraph where Paul works through what gave him confidence before is uh, the religious paragraph. And then he describes the confidence in Christ. But whatever were gained to me, now I count as really loss. not just going from good to better, but from real loss to real gain. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. But I consider them like garbage. To be found in him... And then this second paragraph, the second main thing after what he's just said, really outlines the gospel, what the gospel means. I think in its most fundamental way, be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the sharing in or participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And that's, that's Paul's humility there. That's not second-guessing the resurrection so that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's the gospel. And then the concluding paragraph is his holy ambition. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see the beginning religious statement of his ambition. And he describes it in the first chapter of Galatians as well, that I was advancing in 
the Jewish faith more than any of my peers. There was real ambition in Paul, but now that ambition has really changed radically because of Christ. So for all of us, we, I hope this morning in these few moments together before we share the Lord's table, we are thinking of the difference between religious confidence and Christ-centered confidence. And that particularly has to do with how you think of the resurrection. That I might know the power of his resurrection. One of the things I found really surprising this week, and it had not really hit me until this week and studying this passage, is that the Pharisees, of whom Saul, before he became Paul, felt so proud to belong to, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Paul believed in the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. 23 years later, after Paul's conversion, he will be confronted by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem about his preaching of the crucified and risen Messiah. And there will be the Pharisees and there will be the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were kind of the elite of the Jewish leadership. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. The prophets, the wisdom literature, the rest. The Pharisees believed in the whole Old Testament as we have it, but they did not. And there was a difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees over the belief in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe it. The Pharisees did. 23 years after, when Paul is brought to account by the Sanhedrin for his preaching of the gospel, he introduces himself this way. I am a Pharisee. I believe in the hope of the resurrection. I'm fascinated by the present tense. (laughs) I am a Pharisee. 23 years after, he is claiming, in a sense, leveraging that history with the Pharisees. Now, so one of the things we have to deal with here is, how did the Pharisees believe in the resurrection And how did Paul come to believe in the resurrection? Because there's two different senses of the power of resurrection. The Pharisees believed that the resurrection would happen when God made Israel first again. Took out Rome, reestablished the temple, in a way that was not compromised by that Greco-Roman culture. The resurrection would take place. Remember at the tomb of Lazarus, it's Martha who said, well, yeah, we believe in the resurrection. It'll come in that last day. Now, what Paul felt as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Paul believed that they could work toward the resurrection by their observance of the Torah, 
by their obedience to the law, by keeping the ceremonial, rituals, the customs, to the T, that he was working on behalf of the fulfillment of Israel and the resurrection of the righteous by doing the kind of zealous, earnest effort that he was doing. There are seven features that uh, Paul outlines there in his confidence, his religious confidence. Circumcised the eighth day. So he's a true Jew by birth with parents, with, by his parents. And his parents meticulously followed the law. The second, of the people of Israel. He possesses all the rights and privileges of the covenant people of God. Of the tribe of Benjamin, and what's unique about that is Benjamin, the tribe, occupied the territory of the temple. And of course, their first king, Saul, of whom he was named after, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Fourth, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And what that means is, even though he lived in Tarsus, he learned Hebrew. And he belonged to that covenant people of God from day one. Fifth, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees being the strictest Jewish sect, educated in Jewish law by a Hebrew teacher. Six, as for zeal, persecuting the church. For Paul, that was resurrection power. Applied. Fighting for Israel fighting for that which he really believed in and doing so more zealously than he saw others doing. And he could rate and rank himself in relationship to them. And then seventh, and it makes you think of the rich young ruler who approached Jesus, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul was a very confident man. until he met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, where he's got the subpoena power. He's got the official endorsement to collect any Christian that he finds and haul him back to Jerusalem for judgment. And suddenly there's this uh, flash of light, there's this audible voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's going to radically transform Saul. We don't actually know when he became, when he became Paul. Luke doesn't tell us specifically. It seems to be identified sometime later in a missionary journey to Cyprus when Saul becomes Paul. Saul was told to go to Damascus and wait for three days. Three days in utter blindness, three days fasting, three days praying. And Ananias, the Lord sends, and Ananias says to, uh, to the Lord, Lord, don't you know that he's come here to persecute and collect Christians and haul them back to Jerusalem? And the Lord responds to Ananias 
you go. He has no idea how much he will suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias does go. Saul spends three years in Damascus. There's a lot of uh, not said aspects of that. I wonder sometimes if those three years are something like the three years in seminary. Uh, he must have been under the tutelage of Ananias. He must have been being educated by the Christian body in Damascus that he had come to persecute. Also interesting, in that three-year period of time, we're told, Paul tells us in Galatians, that Paul, is going, Paul sets out for Arabia, and Arabia really stretches all the way from east of Damascus all the way down to Mount Sinai. And N.T. Wright believes that Paul took a journey from Damascus all the way down to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, in order to retrace the steps of the prophet Elijah and to make sure, to make sure that the experience that he had on the Damascus Road was a genuine calling of God and the Lord in his life. Shortly after his three years in Damascus, what I'm painting a picture of here is that this transition from confidence in religion to confidence in in Christ, the risen Lord, in Paul's life just didn't happen overnight. Yeah, he immediately began preaching Jesus. There's no question about that, but there is a long process here of the Lord working with Paul's spiritual development and his reassessment of basically the whole of Scripture. After the three years in Damascus, and in between that is the Arabian journey, Paul goes to Jerusalem for a short visit, describes that in Galatians 1, meets Peter, meets some of the apostles, but not all of them. Barnabas is a bit of his go-between on this. And then he uh, goes from Caesarea, where he caused a commotion because of preaching the gospel, and he's sent to Tarsus. And Tarsus is his home, And for the next 10 years, Paul works in the family business, a leather shop, making awnings and tents. Can you imagine that? Here's a guy who's on the cusp of the elite Jewish religious culture, and he's spending a decade working with his hands, talking about Jesus at his craftsman table, you know, that stripped away the pride. That stripped away the ego. That doesn't happen all, that doesn't usually happen in most people, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, without some time. And it's in that time that I think the apostle was prepared by the Lord to do the kind of Gentile ministry that God called him to do. But he had a decade to think about it before again returning to Jerusalem and confronting that 
reality in Jerusalem between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and his belief. Some of the things that I think Paul learned in that decade, and we don't know really when the thorn in the flesh occurred, but the truth is there that uh, was in Paul's life and heart. My grace is sufficient for you, the Lord said to him, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response, therefore I will boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That was the time in which I think the Apostle Paul moved from a Joshua conquest strategy in the name of religion to a great commission strategy of going and making disciples of all nations. You get the difference, right? Between a life that's based on your pedigree, on your covenant connections, on your zeal, on your obedience for the law, and a confidence that's based solely in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A righteousness I haven't earned, but a righteousness that I've, been, that I've received. And then strategizing in such a way as to bring this good news with all your weakness. You know, he, he says to the Corinthians, I didn't come in eloquence or with wisdom because I didn't want you to get confused that this came from human wisdom but I came to you in fear and trembling. And I endeavored to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You don't get to that strategy, I think, overnight. Here's a point of application. And you know, I really don't know where you stand at all politically. And I don't really want to know but here's the point. On January 6th, when the Capitol was attacked by those who sought to disrupt the congressional process of authorizing the 2020 election, among the Capitol attackers were a lot of well-meaning, zealous Christians who believed that they were acting on their faith. They held Bibles, they carried crosses, they displayed John 3.16 signs, they displayed Jesus save signs. Some of the participants were from the Jericho March. They played, they, they blew the Jewish ritual horns, the shofars. Along with them, were members of the, and not represented by them in any way, but people carrying Confederate flags and alt-right advocates and Nazi swastikas. I've been trying to understand their zeal. I've been trying to understand the confusion in our country among Christians. 
among family members of mine who identify with that zeal. And it helps me to understand that the Apostle Paul, before meeting the resurrected Lord, when he was operating on pharisaical resurrection power of Israel first and Rome be damned, and even to the point of persecuting Christians, that that kind of religious power was dramatically, diametrically opposed to the power of the gospel. And this helps me to understand this idea that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and that Paul, 23 years after his conversion, would say, I am a Pharisee and I believe in the hope of the resurrection, as he now transposes, translates, revolutionizes, transvalues the meaning of the resurrection. There is a difference between the Joshua conquest, where God told the Israelites to occupy Canaan and to wipe out pagans, because he was concerned for the integrity of the covenant people of God. But we are in a different day. In a radically different day, we can't practice the Joshua conquest. What we have been given is a great commission to go and make disciples, to love people with the love of Christ, to show the fruit of the Spirit, and to be as tough as nails of the convictions of the Word of God that has been given to us in every way, sexually, ethically, morally, relatedly, every way you can think of. The integrity of the body of Christ is so important. We're not compromisers. We're people of conviction and compassion. And we are willing to be persecuted for Christ's sake. This past week I listened to an Old Testament professor, Bruce Waltke, whom I dearly love and respect. He's in his 90s. He's a good friend of my son. Um, they're both in the same household of faith in uh, Kirkland, Washington. And uh, Bruce, mid-90s now, just recently lost his wife, uh, wonderful, just a wonderful biblical thinker in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms. And Bruce spent 10 minutes on a message lamenting the demise of America, the loss of the power of the Ten Commandments, our descent into secularism, our, and that, that lament... I guess I understand that lament, and it's a true lament, and everything he said is true. But I wonder how the apostles would respond. I kind of think the apostles would say, Bruce, what do you expect? The world is the world. We live in a democratic republic. The, the will of the people, 
as awful as it may be at times, is, is what it is. And we can't manipulate it, we can't change it, we can't dominate it. It is lamentable, much of what's happening in culture. But how do you respond to that? With the compassionate, convictional, good news of Jesus Christ. And then in the same few days later, I listened to, because a a brother-in-law sent it to me, Rick Warren's speech uh, at the uh, Wilberforce weekend. And uh, he spoke on the title, The Church is the Single Greatest Force of Good in the World. And Rick Warren, again, you've got to give him a lot of respect for the power of the gospel that he himself has proclaimed at Saddleback Church in in California and his purpose-driven life, his purpose-driven church. Uh, A lot to be commended there for a clear voice uh, representing the gospel. But I just, I didn't grasp the triumphalism of the greatest, biggest, most loving organization in the world, the world that invented globalization, the the organization that invented globalization. I don't don't really resonate with the lament of Waltke or with the triumphalism of Rick Warren. Because I don't think the apostles would. I think the apostles would say, you look, we're resident aliens, we're chosen outsiders. We are to be a people that do not have to concentrate on how bad the world is, but we have to concentrate on how good Christ intends us to be. Not in our own power, but in the power of the Spirit of God, way more powerful than we ever intended to be. I consider everything a loss, Paul says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I haven't already obtained all of this or arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Whether you're in medicine or education or art or carpentry or a mechanic, these words are for us. And there's a difference between confidence in religion and confidence in Jesus Christ. There's a difference between the Joshua conquest, right in its time, sovereignly planned by God, but it's not right in our time, because it's the Great Commission that calls us to love this world. It's not Israel first, it's not America first, it's the kingdom of God in Christ, for Christ and his kingdom becomes the new motto for the Christian. I I really don't know where you stand politically, but I do know you stand on the gospel. So weigh these words, even if inside right now you're really angry with anything I've said, Weigh them before the Spirit of God. Know that I'm just a human conveyor of truth as I've been led, I think, by the Lord. But certainly I'm not perfect. 
So may they just be humbly laid out there as you think and pray and as the Lord leads and guides you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for Shades Valley Community Church. I thank you for its leadership, its pastors, its spiritual guides. I thank you, Lord, for this fellowship of believers, for what they mean here in Birmingham. I thank you that in many ways they're a kind of training ground for people as they're sent out then in all sorts of vocations. Lord, may it be true. I want it to be true for me. I want it to be true for everyone here that indeed we are led and guided for Christ and his kingdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen.